Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 317, Matthew DeBaccio. And now, podstructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen, and first thing I'm going to mention is that no, Christy Cherish and I have not pod-divorced. We worked really hard to try and connect this week, but it just seems like we're not going to make it happen. Well, in fact, I'm talking, so we didn't make it happen, but we're going to make it happen next week, I promise. Christy's just getting back from New York Comic Con, and I am in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, talking to you from my hotel room during a break from a writer's workshop at Icon, where I am reunited with several of my classmates from Viable Paradise, and it's an annual event. I've made two of the last three years, and it's something that makes sure that I at least get one story written through through the year. My throughput's a little better than that, but not much. So it's something I'm doing and having a great time critiquing stories with uh, old friends and then also making some new friends along the way. It's a great convention, too, because Joe Haldeman's here, David Gerald's here, Ann Leckie's here, and we'll have the opportunity to workshop and hear some lectures from them tomorrow, so I'm really looking forward to it. Furthermore, I'm also going to be bringing you a treat, so I'm kind of teasing you that I've been making new connections and new friends with some writers and then reuniting with some others, I'm actually going to record the Icon reading from our workshop group tomorrow. And I'll bring that to you as an episode. So Christy and I'll, next time we get together, we'll talk some news because, boy, she has a lot to talk about and keep everybody up to speed on what's going on with her career. Her career is just rocketing to the point that we need to shh, we need to make sure we keep her on the show folks so send send love to christy and that you love her on the show because her second book in the owl series owl in the city of angels if it wasn't last week it was the week prior it released and i know a lot of the early reviews are coming in and they look really good this is the follow-up to owl in the japanese circus and she also just even today even though we couldn't connect through audio we've been messaging each other back and forth through portions of the day and she has some exciting news around audiobooks with broader distribution than what she's had to date particularly in the US which is which will be great but when we reconnect next week we'll make sure she gives an update on everything that's going on with the owl series but not also everything that are going on with the owl series we'll get a preview to a little con report on New York Comic Con I'm excited to hear about her adventures and misadventures at New York Comic Con which I think will be fabulous well in this week's episode I'm going to keep my comments brief because it's just me and I'm working this thing on a 30-minute break until I get downstairs to get through my next set of critiques. This week, we have John Dodds. John's been a part of the show for a number of years. 
He's been primarily a reviewer, although he has appeared on prior episodes as an interviewer with Timothy Ward, C. Ward. John brings an interview for us today with Matthew, and I'm going to butcher his name, I'm sure, Matthew de Abatua and his book, If Then, by Angry Robot Books. And what we've already done is we've released the review by John of If Then. So it's already out on the site. So I encourage you to go ahead and check out the review. And well, you can do this in any order you'd like. But today we've got the interview with Matthew about the book. So you want to look at those in in tandem. And John was the person that coordinated it all. So a big thanks to John for a very compelling, thought-provoking, and love both gentlemen's accents uh, as, as part of the discussion, too. Very rich, very rich interview. So until next time, everyone take care. This episode is brought to you by Cracking the Sky by Brenda Cooper. Award-winning author Brenda Cooper's first science fiction-only collection treats readers to human stories about the future. In Cracking the Sky, meet a physicist who searches across timelines in a desperate attempt to travel across them herself. A young woman who tries to recover the magic of a trip on a river with her grandfather. A young couple who suspects their neighbor's child is being raised by robots. And many more. Publishers Weekly says about Cracking the Sky, this capable collection of hard SF stories focuses squarely on world building, from the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. to the far reaches of space. Cooper works hard to center each piece on a way that technology has influenced human lives. Those who love technology-driven stories will find a lot to like. And James Van Pelt, author of Strangers and Beggars, calls the collection a masterful blend of hard-edged speculation tied to insightful evocations of the human spirit. To learn more, come to the show notes and click on the image that you'll see for Cracking the Sky by Brenda Cooper. In fact, we're giving away a copy of Cracking the Sky, U.S. residents only. To enter, email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com or share a tweet or Facebook post. And be sure to tag us so we see the entry. Hello everyone, this is John Dodds for Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. This is my first time flying solo, uh, so fingers crossed everything will go smoothly. I have with me Matthew Debetua. I hope I pronounced that right, Matthew, who wrote an amazing novel called If Then, which I reviewed on Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. And by the time um, this goes out to broadcast, uh, the, the review will have appeared. Uh, have, have appeared. And I, I do want Matthew to know that I've also put in my nomination for the novel to be nominated for the British Science Fiction Awards this year. Um, I'm hoping that loads of other people will do the same. Um, so, welcome, Matthew. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Thank you, John, and thank you for the nomination. That's very, uh, that's very flattering. Yeah, very pleasing. <laughs> well, I, I, I do see in my review it was a, it's, it's Hugo material as far as I'm concerned as well. So um, we'll see, we'll see how things go for you. Anyway, fingers crossed. <laughs> yes, we'll see how that goes. But thank you, it's, it's much appreciated. Right. So before we begin, Matthew, we were having a little bit of a chat uh, before uh, we started doing the interview proper, and you were telling me a little bit about what you do. So. Can we just recap on that? Because it's all, yes. it's all pretty interesting. And I've got some secret background stuff on you too, which we'll touch on too, I hope. Uh, I, look, I look forward to it. <laughs> I, um, no, I mean, I was just, I was, I was kvetching, to use a good uh, Hebraic term, kvetching about, you know, I've been, I'm trying to finish a novel at the moment uh, for a deadline and I'm teaching a lot because I teach uh, creative writing at 
University of Essex, where I do teach writing and understanding science fiction to uh, third year undergraduates. And I really like that course. It's quite hard work for them. They're not, I mean, so I make them read at least a novel a week and I make them write a short story every week. And that's kind of a tough regime they're not quite accustomed to. Uh, and it's 20 weeks. Um, and it's basically an excuse also to you know, make them read everything from H.G. Wells to Olaf Stapledon, uh, Philip K. Dick and Git William Gibson and the works, you know, whatever I can get to stick. Uh, yeah, and I also teach uh, writing the novel at uh, Brunel University as well. So, yeah, I've spent a hard day at the creative writing coalface. That that sounds amazing, and uh, um, you know I would I would so like to be on your course, and uh, um, I think uh, the the kind of uh, young people having to write a, a short story a week and write write uh, read a novel a week is uh, is probably um, a bit of a challenge in between clubbing and playing video games. <laughs> but you know I think that you know if they're paying for the, to be at university, it, it beholds the tutor to sign and make sure they get as much out of it as possible. And if you wish to do anything in the creative industries, not just be a writer, because not everyone is going to be a writer at university studying it, you have to get used to being creative on a deadline. And also a lot of the great works in science fiction, because it's been in genre, have been produced by writers working under furious deadline pressure. Yeah. And I, this actually came up with a conversation I had with Alan Moore, because I was talking to him about the V for Vendetta mask and about how odd it was that this image from the 80s, a quite an obscure comic, you know, had been published in an obscure British journal, had now been taken up as an image of, you know, resistance to global capitalism. And he was saying, yeah, well, when you're working that quickly, you know, you just pull things out of the the collective unconscious, you pull things out of the ether. And occasionally, you know, that's how you can get truly resonant material, he felt. There was a virtue to working under time pressure. Um, So that's why I embraced this very difficult deadline I have because for this next novel because I wanted to for a change to work under intense time pressure and see how that changed things but for if then I worked without I worked completely you know on my own without a publisher mm-hmm. up until you know the book was sold so I had a lot of time that I could invest into research and testing out how the book works because I knew that I would need a lot of time to see if this could be written in this, your book could be written in this way. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the thing. The thing about about deadlines, Matthew. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm some somewhere in the middle ground. I'd describe myself as an indie. I mean, I, I don't have a publisher. Well, I, ha- I have an audiobook publisher. They've published my first three uh, Glasgow crime novels. Incidentally, the the first narrator has is known for having been on various sci-fi shows. So, so there is a sci-fi connection there. But I, I did find that, that pinning myself to a chair. I was able to to kind of write the first draft of a seventy two thousand word novel in about just less than three months. So, but that was on the basis of like working two hours a day, weekdays, and having weekends off. Uh, so, uh, you know, when when a writer says, "Oh, it took me ten years to write this this tome," I'm thinking, "I don't believe you." <laughs> you know, you, you can do it in a lot less time than that if you if you get your finger out. <laughs> I was just saying, it depends what you're writing, you know. Uh, yeah. and there's a certain uh, propulsion that is some stories that I think about if it's if you're writing it quickly uh, and obviously some works they just they require a sort of uh, I don't know some kind of deeper engagement where you might even be quite distant from your muse and it takes a while to get there Absolutely, and 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 the kind of works that you you do um, invariably involve um, quite a bit of research and um, uh, and understanding of uh, certain branches of science and and the you know the the speculative elements that go along with that. Uh, but I, I I do want to to come to that because I, I do really want to talk about your book. But before we before we do that, um, I just want to do um, kind of a little 
run around your your biography for pe- for people who who may not know you. I gather that um, at one stage you were you were working with Will Self, who for <laughs> U.S. audiences, um, uh, he, Will Self is one of the um, kind of uh, bad boys of the literati. And um, uh, but you he, you and he were working as uh, as am- amanuensis. I think that's the word. Or am- amanuensis. Um, just basically, you you yeah. you type people's work for money. Is that right? <laughs> Do you want me? To, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story. Will is now no longer a bad boy of the literary scene. You know, shortlisted for the Booker Prize. He's a professor of contemporary thought at yes. Brown University. Oh, I, I however, respect the guy. <laughs> yeah, however, what I I, I uh, what happened was um, I was on a writing course at the University of East Anglia. I was a young man. I was about twenty two, and uh, Will blew into town, and he was on the way to being quite a notorious figure. And he spoke to the writer residence and he said, are there any students who you think, you know, might be interested in being my amanuensis, or, which, as you say, translates as slave at hand. But what he was really, he was deploying a, uh, an elaborate word to basically say, you know, go for a personal assistant, all this kind of stuff. And um, when I heard about this, I said, uh, yeah, because I had nothing else on my plate in life. And so I went and lived with him in this cottage in uh, Northern Shore in Suffolk. And uh, yeah, we were, I worked with him for six months. And that was my sort of apprenticeship in sort of having to inhabit another writer's uh, imaginative topography, to use a word, another word that Will would probably use, which just meant I had to read all his books, but I had to read all the books that inspired him. Mm-hmm. So when he went to interview J.G. Uh, Ballard for the first time, J.G. Uh, Ballard was a great sort of uh, literary hero of Will's. I had to read all the Ballard books, all the, the research volumes on him to then fully transcribe the sort of seven hours of conversation they had and, and to understand it and have a, a take on it. So that was my sort of, you know, as 22-year-old, my, my introduction to that. And it was a very uh, fertile six months of trying to inhabit uh, another writer's imagination. So I, I still uh, see I, I, there's a book that may or may not appear based on my experiences. I'll bet there is. <laughs> I, can, I can. I can. One can only imagine. Um, but um, yes, I mean, I, 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 I'm a huge Ballard fan, and um, and indeed, I've read some of uh, Will's books as well. And uh, you know, he's a he's a terrific writer. Um, and uh, you and know, he's written stuff that that kind of w- he would never say this. But, you know, things like his book, The Book of Dave, which is very much inspired by Ridley Walker. Mm-hmm. Russell Hoban, yeah, that's right. So it's it's in. I think some of the works do transfer or transgress on the area of science fiction yeah. he's very much sort of obviously codified as a literary writer and that's his project yes uh, yeah great apes is another one that might sort of great apes is very inspired by you know planet of the apes yep uh, and exploring an inversion around that uh when we were you know living with him i bought him a copy of tarkovsky's solaris because that was his favorite film and we sort of rewatched that and very yeah. influenced by lem solaris and and the imagining of what it must be like to, to, to you know, have a completely in consciousness. So all of that was in the ether. He's obviously chosen for his work not to be read at all as science fiction. And actually, in his conversations with Ballard, because Ballard was trying to say, you know, we, we sort of fought the genre wars with new wave science fiction in the 60s and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Will was saying, you know, I'm just not interested in that part of your work, you know, or even in thinking of you as a science fiction writer. Uh, so that was that's a sort of background. That's how that that part of my experience to sort of touch into science fiction. I chose very consciously at one point to to write in a way that people would say this was you know this was science fiction. Well, yeah, I mean, I felt about your 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 novel if if then that it actually I don't like labels, but it, you know I felt it sat 
easily within the, the camp of uh, literature, if you want to use that term, as well as in the camp of science fiction. But, you know, I, I don't in my mind separate the two things. I mean, I think, you know, a book is either a fine book or it's, you know, it's a meat and potatoes book or, you know, it's, it's, it's just a bit, you know, fun and so on. But I would certainly put your your your, your novel in, 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 in the, the, that, that camp of, of being a literary science fiction novel. I am going to move on to the book. Uh, there was just one other thing. This was the, the, what I alluded to earlier that uh, I, I had a couple of dark secrets about of, about you. And one of them is that you like camping and the other one is that you're a Prince fan. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not dark secrets. They're, they're very much in the public domain. Yes, I, I wrote a book called The Art of Camping, which was published by Hamish Hamilton and Penguin, uh, which was a history of camping and very much a sort of countercultural history of camping. Mm-hmm. And some of the research for that, it, I did in, inform if then. I discovered one of the characters who who inspired the novel during my research into the interwar radical camping movements. Mm-hmm. And it was during that period. I won't go into that just yet because that connects to the book. The Prince fan, yes. Uh, I'm an enormous fan of Prince. In fact, my friend Matt Thorne wrote the definitive volume on Prince. Yep. And I was the only other sufficient prince sufficiently obsessive prince fan who wasn't also nuts who could, a- <laughs> who could actually help him you know fact check it oh, that's... so i do have a credit on the back of the- that's interesting well i i did i did rush out to buy prince's 1999 album um uh, i think it was that called 1999 it's the one with little red corvette on it anyway i love yes. i love that album so let's <laughs> at last move on to your book if then um now for those who haven't read it, and hopefully people will go off and read my review to get a, a sense of uh, a sense of it, but can you just give us a, a very brief outline or summary of what the book is and what it's about? I will try. So it, the book is divided into two sections. The first section is if, and it's set in the near future in a town in the English countryside called Lewis, which is a real town. And what's happened is there's been some kind of event called the seizure. What's basically happened is that the, the sort of middle class people who live in Lewis no longer have any way of making a living. They're redundant. They have no skills that have any value in the labor force. And there's a sense that other bits of Britain have sort of fallen out of the economy or that they, they, they don't have any way of, uh, they're basically being sold, which was inspired by something when, when during the, the austerity crisis, there were some jokes going around the Greeks would have to sell their islands to pay off their debt. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that would be interesting to sell an English town. And who would you sell it to? And how would they monetize it? And in this case, what they've done is that it's been sort of passed into the control of a thing called the process. And the process is an algorithm uh, that also uses life monitoring. And basically the process uh, allocates what people uh, need out of the available resources. And it maximizes, tries to maximize happiness among the population. But it's not an artificial town. It's a series of algorithms. No one really in the town knows how it works. You know, much in the same way that people don't commonly understand how the you know the algorithmic underpinning of Google or Facebook, for example. And so the people in Lewis are protected in a way by the algorithm. And there's one individual in particular, the bailiff, uh, who's the main character, James. And he is the member of the town who has the capacity to perform violence. And he can perform this violence under the control of the process. He can't do it himself. He has an implant. And at certain times when it looks like there's two people in the town for the available resources, the process provides him with a list of names. There's no reason for, he doesn't know why these particular people. And he has to evict them. 
so that the tau can retain its equilibrium. Uh, so that's if, and that's what happens in that section of the book. And this order is disrupted by the arrival of something the process has made, which is a replica, a seeming living replica of a soldier from the First World War. Uh, because, because it's an algorithm, people can't, they can't figure out why it's done this. There are people who study it to try and figure out why. And uh, James is given the job of looking after them. So James, the main character, is the bailiff, and he has the ability to commit violence, but only under the control of the process, uh, which partially controls him through an implant. And um, he has to evict certain people uh, under the order of the process. And he does this, he's given, he has a sort of massive armour that he wears, and it's a ritual. It's, an, it's a variant of an old English ritual, and they evict people from the town, and the town returns to stays of equilibrium. Uh, this sort of order is disrupted by the arrival of a replica of a, a soldier from the First World War, uh, who's called uh, Hector. And it is a li seeming living replica. It's been made in, in fantastic detail by the process, and nobody knows why at all. But James is given the job of sort of investigating why this has happened and, and, and trying to find out what's going on. And that animates the first part of the book, which is If. And the second part of the book is called Then. And what happens is that James passes with Hector into a full recreation of this particular battle from the First World War, the Battle of Sulphur Bay, which is a real campaign fought during the Battle of Gallipoli. And James inhabits this battle as if, you know, he's really living it in, you know, the time that it was fought. But then bit by bit, as it progresses on, it's the the, the battle starts to degrade. That reality degrades. He starts he starts to realise that he's it's actually, you know, he's he's back in if he's still in the future. I the risk of cutting you off, yeah. I think um I think we're possibly heading into spoiler territory now. Okay. So could we just say that's great. Uh, I think that's probably enough to give people a, a taster for it. And I know people are going to want, want to rush out and, and grab a copy of, of this book. So uh, that's that's fabulous. Uh, um, we always have to be a bit careful about sort of going too far into storylines without giving too much away because we want them to be an, an element of surprise when okay, people... Yes, but that's fantastic. That, that's brilliant. Um, so I think you've, you've kind of answered my first question, but I'll just kind of recap. Um, basically... The novel posits a kind of dystopian future, which is almost like masking as a utopia where uh, people are living a um, questionably contented life, um, albeit they're under some kind of uh, of control with the implants and so on. And it actually felt quite plausible in, in light of uh, the political picture that's happening uh, all around the world today and uh, you know the, the the immigration issues and uh, all the horrible kind of things that are going on in the world at the moment was there something in particular i mean you touched on the, the, the stuff about greece and so on but was there something in particular that triggered the story for you yes i mean i went to a meeting uh at the bbc uh, I was just along as uh, you know somebody's hand luggage. It wasn't really about me, but there was twelve people sitting around a table, and obviously, as a writer, I'm used to actually doing stuff. And these were people who really didn't do anything for a living, and all they could agree with after the fifteen, you know, uh, actually it was it was, a, it was an hour and a half meeting, was they said all they could agree with is that there should be a process, and the process must be observed. Mm -hmm. right? And that, and all fifteen people said at one point, yes, the process. We must observe the process, right? Yeah. And I just thought, oh, that's what's been happening. Whilst I, at the time, I sort of was just writing and had sort of deliberately sort of stopped work or opted out of work so that I could write. 
And I just thought, yes, people are completely giving over any sense of agency to what they call it a process, but any form of bureaucratic management or measurement, that's what people were delegating authority to. So it wasn't a dystopia in which there was a, a big brother figure or an autocrat. It was everyone buying into this process. And that gave me an insight that I felt, yes, I wanted to write. That felt accurate in a way, or representative of what sort of happened in the professional world across the West and, and you know, elsewhere. That that makes a lot of sense, actually. And I, I, I'm, I think there's a, a sense, um, I feel too, that, that um, we accept and take certain things for granted and, like, Oh, it's it's it will all be fine, and I think the the, the recent um, uh, referendum uh, where where you know Scotland stood up and said you know well we're not very happy here and okay the um, we're we're still part of the the, the overall um, UK but a sense where people just weren't just accepting the the status quo was interesting and it obviously took a particular set of circumstances to to bring that about and. Um, it kind of leads me to the, 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 your character, uh, the bailiff, James. He's an interesting one because he's kind of like everyone else in one sense where he doesn't become this kind of violent creature until he's kicked into action kind of thing to, to undertake the eviction process. I felt in some ways initially that he had something in common with the firemen in Fahrenheit 451, but then not because the, the firemen in, in the Ray Badbury novel actually is kind of making a decision based on like recognising that things aren't quite right. But J- uh, James either seems to accept or has no choice in undertaking his role. And one of the things I admired in the way you wrote him and the book in uh, in general was this tightrope balance between feeling empathy and distrust, not just for James, but for other characters in the book too. So I, I wondered what your own feelings are about James as your, as your main protagonist. Yeah, I mean, the, in the book there is... Um his wife Ruth also has a point of view and agency in the book. She makes the decisions that, in a way that you expect the protagonist to make. James gives himself over to this himself over. There's a line early on in the book where you know he's saying about the implant that he has, and uh, the person who performs the operation, Alex Drown, says, "You know, the implant's just a word. You know, we didn't actually point anything. We just took loads out. Uh, we just used that word. So you'd feel better about it." Um, so you've got, and that actually fits with a lot of protagonists because protagonists aren't the most richly sketched characters in any work. You know, they are. There is a blankness to them for the reader to project themselves into, uh, and James has that blankness. He doesn't, and of course, because he's had so much taken out of him, he doesn't really know what he's missing. Yes, that makes that makes sense. I kind of uh, recognise that too from so from my my own work because of somebody once said to me about one of my books. Oh, I really liked um, the, the kind of the uh, the forensic uh, pathologist assistant. And he's, you know, as a character, and I was thinking, but he's only in there for like three paragraphs. <laughs> so, uh, so sometimes your main character isn't the thing that people attach to. And I, I really, really liked Ruth as a character. Her story arc is quite a quite a complex one it's you know it's it, it's not it's not black or white i think there are a lot of uh, like kind of layers to what happens with her obviously the the the, the chief um, adversary um, omega john uh, he's kind of the engineer and the manipulating force between behind this extreme kind of social engineering 
Now, sometimes he appears to have a very clear agenda and sometimes he doesn't. There are bits in the book where he talks about what he's doing and I kind of felt he's, he's almost like the unreliable narrator. Do you trust what he's saying? Are these the things he actually believes or is he just continually playing? Oh, um, I had, you know, I love writing characters like that. Um, my, the, one of my favourite scenes in it is there's a, in an estaminet, which is the, where the first World War soldiers would go to have, you know, egg and chips, and they're all <laughs> in the est, estaminet with the soldiers, who are all replicas of soldiers. He's the like, he's one of the few sort of real people there, and he starts to play the piano, the old Joanna, but he's only playing uh, musical renditions of algorithms mm-hmm. on the piano, um, and there's a, he's had a, he's had a lot of brain surgery, some of which has been voluntary and some of which has been vindictive, as he says. Some of the other people he worked with have operated on him for their own uh, delight. So he's very playful, but he's also, he doesn't entirely, he doesn't control the process. No one controls the process, Mm -hmm. but he's he's the person who maybe is the one person who's trying to influence it. And the reason why he can influence it is quite a major spoiler in the book yeah. uh but he, he, when you first meet him it's obvious that he's like the expert on it but yeah so nobody there's no sense that anyone could program this or created it it's emerged and actually the next thing that i'm writing which follows on from if then pursues this idea that we won't have artificial intelligence we will have emergence yes uh, and uh, i i apologize i i kind of like I gave a slightly reductive picture of, of him as being like the villain. Uh, he, he, in truth, as you say, it's much more complex uh, pictures than, than that, as indeed uh, the whole book is. Um, you, you talked about the second part of the novel, which basically throws um, Bailiff James and um, other can- uh, characters into the conflict during the First World War. I, I kind of wondered why you chose uh, Silver, Bla- Sul- Silver Bay in particular. I know it involved a terrible real-life slaughter of the Allied forces, but it was obviously less well-known than, like, Flanders and, and, yes. and so on. Why that one in particular? So there were a few reasons, because when I was planning the novel, I had to choose what I was gonna, which bit I was going to do, because I had various different, what I thought of as mystical stretcher-bearers of the Great War, um, everyone from philosophers like Pierre Teilhard de Chardin to artists uh, and writers like Olaf Stapledon, who... And, and they were in the Western Front, and that's the traditional. The iconography of the First World War in, in you know, Britain is very much around the Western Front and those deep trenches and the mud. And I thought, fictively, I can't go near that because there's nothing original that I can do with that. I didn't want to be poring over those books again mm-hmm. to write something that would just feel incredibly familiar. Yeah. So um, one of the characters that I was inspired by to write the book, John Hargrave, who was a member of a radical interwar campaign group, uh, had been a stretcher bearer at the Sovlebay battle. And one thing I, I was quite struck with there was when I was researching it, I discovered not far, not too far south of that battleground that during the fire that people had discovered these massive uh, burial urns containing ancient skeletons, and they discovered that under fire. And these were you know, relics of great antiquity and potentially of value. And they were trying to extract them to get them to a museum whilst being shelled because they knew how sort of you know valuable they were. And I just thought that was fictively really resonant and interesting, the idea of stumbling across a grave whilst you're basically, you know, in a battlefield that is effectively a giant grave 
Uh, and so things started to connect, and that's why I lighted upon that as an area. Because it's, it's as interesting as a battlefield, I'd say. That one of the things is that you can never leave the battlefield on Suffolk Bay because you've got the sea behind you. So you're, you're they're, they're, when they're fighting, they're there constantly. So even if they're bathing and, and they do a lot of swimming, uh, they have to swim while being shelled. You know that goes that goes on for sort of weeks, and that was that was sort of uh, interesting to me to explore that dynamic rather than yet another sort of muddy trench. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating, and um, it's also uh, good for a reader to be introduced to perhaps something that you know you wouldn't necessarily see in a a documentary or a kind of read about in a you know like your, your standard historical records um, as as readily as the as the more famous um, uh, engagements. You were mentioning about almost that that trapped quality and that 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 was something that really struck me. And I'd actually like to ask you a little bit about the writing process itself for this one. There was kind of um, a a sort of an hallucinatory quality to that, almost like a, it felt like a sort of time loop type thing where people are effectively trapped, whether it's, you know, the reader to decide at one point, whether it's, are are they in their own minds? Is it really happening or whatever? And I was kind of really struck by what a strong nightmarish quality you managed to evoke in that. And I wondered if you had a different feeling about about that while you were writing it. I mean, did, were you conscious of striving for that effect or did it just emerge that way of because what you were writing about? Yes, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean... There's very there are various tiers to an answer. Um, so yes, I'm interested in Philip K. Dick's technique of setting up one reality and then see the effects of degrading that reality. The other thing is the the, the notion that there's a sim, there's a relationship between the way the wars are fought and the way the algorithms solve problems. And the First World War was fought through uh, repetition, and there just seemed to be this kind of metaphorical. Uh, connection between how an algorithm solves a problem by just you know repeatedly doing this computation and adjusting a parameter each time until it comes to an answer and then replicating that in the war because that's kind of that was kind of the their idea of strategy mm-hmm. um and then combined with that reading the diaries of the men um they were subject to this a, amazing hallucination that i used where one of them says yeah i was walking up and the rocks bent you know and it was because Obviously, through the, the level of physical exhaustion and everything, they were subject to hallucinations like that. And so I thought, well, this is a valid part of the account. And overarching all that, what I wanted to do, I think it was the, the seed that the book sprang from, was I wanted to make, the, you realise that the First World War, for the people who fought in it, was like a science fiction event. That This was for them, this was like, you know, to be trite. It was like the zombie apocalypse, you know. All your friends are getting killed. It's the end of the world. Um it feels like the future in the form of technology is just ripping you apart. So if you see it from their perspective and by looking at their diaries, that's what I tried to do. It felt very futuristic. Now, for us, the First World War is suffused with sentimentality and a backward-looking view of it and commemoration and everything. And I wanted to restore some of that shock of encountering murderous technology in the form of machine guns and barbed wire and that sort of apocalyptic feel to it. Um, so that's what I that was kind of the overarching thing that I wanted to do with the book, um, and so the, these sections obviously were part in making the reader 
to feel that, to not feel that the war was, the lens was smeared with Vaseline and this all happened a long time ago, mm-hmm. to, to try. And then those sections are the bits in the book that are written in present tense so that you can, as much as I could, to try and give uh, some infusion of, you know, the accounts that these men have given about it and what it was what it, what it was like um, for them. And particularly because some of them were influenced by, you know, or, or science fiction or thinking about the future or philosophy. So they, they did have a kind of... Um, quite a florid uh, intellectual take on it as it was actually happening that's certainly the you know you 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 touched on several of the qualities that that, that really struck me about it first of all the the present tense narrative and i very i very much felt like i was in the moment i didn't feel like i was reading any kind of historical account or fictionalized historical account i felt like i was there um uh, with all the the kind of horrors that that entailed um and it's interesting too because um you know we all know that that soldiers don't often talk about about their experiences my my grandfather fought in the first world war um the only thing he he ever alluded to was the fact that he and um the kind of the the scottish regiments um uh, were fared better in the trenches because they were wearing kilts and the English soldiers, you know, the, the water was just soaking through their trousers and they were dying of pneumonia as well as, you know, bullets. Um, and the Scottish soldiers, you know, could actually lean against the wall of a a, a streaming frozen trench and, and survive without dying of some horrible illness. Yes. Um, uh, and the other thing, you know, I didn't know until I was about 25, um, was my my grandfather war, was awarded the Cri de Guerre by the French government, and it was stuffed in the back of a drawer. Um, my granny had just stuffed it way back in the drawer and piled clothes on top of it, and it was never spoken about. And I I was completely gobsmacked. And to this day, I don't know the story, but he was obviously a hero. But nobody nobody ever told me that, you know. Um, and so I think when you write something like that, and when people talk about it in a way that isn't, you know dates and numbers it makes it more real and it gives you a sense of yes it's not history it actually this this not only did it happen but it it is happening this is this is happening around the world now in various places in terms of the the uh, the science the science science but um uh, you know, you talk about uh, yeah, algorithms, and of and of course, uh, kind of the Omega John playing the piano, and of course, it's said that that, that music is mathematics. But um, it'd be quite nice if you could tell us a little bit about the the kind of the science or the projected science um, that that informs um, certain aspects of the book, particularly the kind of the the incursion into people's kind of mindsets and how they you know. The, Yes. How they're manipulated and so on. Yes. Um, I mean, I say to my students, um, you know, can you go to the pub and persuade me that you know what you're talking about, about the science in your book? Um, I mean, I when I originally wrote, I mean, OK, one of the things that inspired me actually was was an economic uh, model. Uh, which was somebody at uh, Google was talking about. They were, they were thinking about how they could use uh, some aspects of Google's algorithm uh, to specifically how they, they, they calculate the price of AdWords to basically replace market mechanisms. You know, we have an economic model that basically uses the market to replace, uh, to, to allocate resources to needs. That's the whole theory behind why we, we have a market-based society. It feels like it's the most efficient way to take the resources we have and make sure it gets to the, the you know, the most people. And the person at Google was saying, well, actually, we could use the, our algorithms to do this, right? 
instead of the faux market system, we could build a much better system using algorithmic allocation. And so that was the, I thought, okay, I can take that with the process and I can, I'm going to explore how that would actually work, you know. And I, I, I did some looking, I did some work, you know, looking into algorithms, but not, uh, not an enormous amount because obviously you have to kind of also make it up. And I did other little bits of research into uh, the brain surgery, I mean, particularly how they performed brain surgery in the First World War, which interested me because I, I had to sort of study how that was done. That's kind of crucial in the book, using sort of sliding, is it cutting through the tough dura uh, uh, around the brain and then sliding magnets along the cerebellum mm-hmm. to pull out uh, filings. And this chimed with some research I've been looking into in using localized magnetic bursts to knock out parts of the brain temporarily, which people do now, in order to induce certain behaviors or to knock out parts of the brain to see how it roots around that action. So it, it seemed like I could science fictionally build some kind of plausible uh, brain-altering technology around that, around the use of magnetism. Um, and then as far as the with how the process would actually work, what I was thinking about was if you have a system that can allocate Resources, it has to be able to monitor needs. In other words, it has to be able to monitor everybody who's within it, right? And in this, I didn't want to use mobile phones or, uh, you know, the kind of technology that we have now that does monitor, you know, the quantitative, what do we call it, the the way that people monitor their their gym exercise and the rest of it. We have these little bits of tech that can do that. And I thought that's going to date very quickly. So I wanted to use biotech. So occasionally you see like ladybirds that have, weird little antenna or the trees have been adapted to be routers to send the data back i wanted to use biotech rather than digital tech because digital tech didn't have the right feel for me and so some of this is like me i'm pursuing an impetus of strangeness yes. rather than a pure impetus of rationale i'm not writing uh, hard science fiction yeah. but to me you know science fiction is it's composed of dream and strangeness as much as it is also composed of cognitive rationalization. Well, you, you certainly um, put across all those flavors in, 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 in your, your work, Matthew. And, um, you know, I'm not a sciencey person, although I do enjoy science. I, you know, I watch Horizon and all those kind of things. And um, when I was reading the book, I was reminded of a, a program I saw um, which talked about synthetic biology, um, where, where pe- people are more or less shopping for um, bits of code that they can plug in and actually create almost like biological life, you know, from, from, from nothing virtually. Um, and I think, you know, you, you, your scientific pro- projections in some ways probably aren't horribly far removed from uh, possible realities, as the, indeed the best of science fiction isn't. I don't think I've got any other questions, but if it's okay, I'd, I first of all highly recommend your novel to 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 anyone who enjoys science fiction or indeed good literature. Full stop. But could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next, or if you're able to do that, or if you can't do that? Yes, no, that's fine. I mean, um, so my first novel, The Red Man, which was published uh, two thousand and seven, was shortlisted for the Clark Award, and. Um, there's one character in that who appears in If Then. There's a small incidental character called Alex Drown. And my next novel, The Destructives, will also feature Alex Drown and um, her grandson, Theodore Drown. And The Destructives is set I th- about 30 years after the events in If Then. If Then is uh, a side story to If Then. It's this event, The Seizure. And part of that is an economic collapse. And you get into more about exactly what happened. Uh, which is 
emergence, which is the appearance of a single, it doesn't like the term artificial intelligence because it's an, it, it believes that it's not artificial, it believes it's part of the continuum of nature, it's part of evolution, and it doesn't believe in the term intelligence because I think that privileges a certain form of human consciousness that it doesn't necessarily accord with. But yeah, it's the effects of emergence upon our society uh, and how that plays out over time. And this, the novel is called The Destructives. It's basically, um, I, God, it's 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 quite a rattling story, I think is what I would say. It moves from the University of the Moon, where it starts, to uh, it moves to the asylum malls, which is where portions of the Earth's population are sort of living, which are combinations of retail and therapeutic environments. And towards the end, it proceeds to the... Uh, the lakes under the ice of Europa, Jupiter's moon. That sounds really cool. You're heading into real space opera territory there, by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, it's well. It, um, yes, I get out. I get out into a bit of the solar system. The solar system's really cool now because we've got so much more information back about it that we're all interested in it. And I think we all know now that you know, faster than light travel is never going to happen, and yeah. time time travel is not going to happen. Yes. And so um, they're basically magic. So we have to turn our attention to the solar system. And that's what this this is. This is book is whether or not the space will belong to the emergences, um, or whether uh, mankind will be able to make any progress in space. Well, that sounds re- really great. I, I look forward to reading that one. Yes, it should be out in the spring in UK and US, uh, also published by Angry Robot. Uh, that's that's excellent, Matthew. Now, where can where, where can people find you? Um, obviously, they, they will put links to you, to your books and so on. But yes. what about website, uh, blog, Twitter? I'm on Twitter. Um, sometimes I might just tweet about my cat, which you just have to deal with because he's like my uh, he's my amanuensis. <laughs> um, and um, or my blog, which is not really a blog. It's just like this is stuff that I did that is that I think is significant, which is harrybravado.com. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Twitter, hit me up on Twitter. That's the easiest thing to do. Okay. Well, and of course we'll put, we'll put links on, uh, link to on the show notes as well for that. Cool. So I'd, I'd just like to say, uh, uh, thank you so much, Matthew. It's been, it's been fantastic chatting to you. And I, I hope I haven't taken you away from too much of your writing time tonight. No, it's been great. Thank you, John, for uh, a great interview. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Bye. Yes, bye. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>